everyone, welcome to the Last Dance After Show. I'm Sam Fragoso, and uh, joining me for the next month on this after show venture is the one and only David Villar. David, how are we doing? We're doing quite well, Sam. Uh, if you're listening, it's my hope that you uh, just watched over the last 24 to 48 hours uh, the first two episodes of the Last Dance documentary. It's on ESPN if you have not seen it. David and I have been studying the tape like it's a game seven. David, what are your initial impressions about these two episodes here? Wow. Um, it's delivered in ways that I had hoped and then probably even beyond that, to be honest with you. It's sports documentary at its finest, in my opinion. Um, it... Uh, and, and I'm not sure yet whether or not that's just because absence makes a heart grow fonder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been, it's been a while since we've really, I mean, look, of course you can go back on YouTube and, you know, watch old Jordan highlights and, and bulls highlights and everything like that. But, um, yeah, compared to the access that we have now to what we had, then it's, it's refreshing. How about you? You know, right away, they tell you what kind of movie it's going to be. Uh, you know, it's, it immediately goes into the contention between general manager Jerry Krause and, and Jordan and the rest of the Bulls team. And I think there's a different movie that is like, this is the best team ever, and look at how good they are, and look at how they all got along. And from the beginning... They're like, look, this was a great team, but it came at a pretty unreasonable price. And the the stuff about Jerry Krause, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but the quote from Jerry Krause, where he essentially says, you know, it's the organization that wins games, not players. That's delivered within the first like 10 minutes of this movie. And I was just immediately like, well, this is what they're going to do. They're, they're not going to cut corners. They're going to go to uncomfortable places, uh, which which I'm I'm very thankful for because uh, some backstory here. This is a documentary that was supposed to come out in 2018, then 2019, then June of 2020, and then the COVID-19 crisis unfolded. And as I have have, have learned to know it, you know the NBA including Adam Silver and, and, and a whole bunch of other people around the league were like, look, we do not have content. We are empty. There's nothing yep. left. NBA vintage hardwood classics is only going so far. <laughs> we need something. And the initial plan was to promote this documentary throughout the NBA playoffs. Um, Jason here, and I believe that's how you pronounce his last name, but I could be botching it. Um, is performing an unbelievable task yeah. in fast-tracking these episodes. I, I was immediately impressed and obviously all in as someone who grew up in Chicago and had heard these kind of war stories about Jordan growing up. But but you only hear the, the war stories, and you hear these kind of periphery details that do not uh, make up a person. And, and I'm just so impressed that they got the access— it totally is worth 10 episodes. Uh, it's spanning 
what seems to be about 15 to 20 years between the years of about 1982 and, and 1999. So look, if Tiger King is going to get six episodes, this can get 10. I mean, this is totally worth 10 episodes to me. Oh, I think that they could go, you know, I think they're only the only limitation that they're would have would just be the amount of footage that was available to them. Um, you know, one would assume that they're using every single piece of footage available to them. And you're absolutely right. What, what is nice about this is that they, it's not just a puff piece. And from, um, accounts from other reporting, uh, for instance, I know that, uh, John Stockton, um, for instance, if I'm not mistaken, was the last interview for the entire documentary. Um, at what point he comes in exactly, I'm not sure. But uh, he he said, like, look, I'm not I'm not going to do this if this is a Jordan Puff piece, uh, which is refreshing. And even Jordan himself is, you know, it's warts and all uh, to a large extent with him, at least, you know, in the first two episodes that we've seen. And and. I kind of think that that's going to kind of going to be the case as is also listening to uh, people that have discussed it with the producers and the producers themselves. They themselves have said, you know, that they didn't they weren't willing to do it if not for getting all access and, and not covering the entire entire history and not just making it, you know, Space Jam two, so to speak, where Mike is the hero, like Mike, and that's just that. So, and, and to what you were saying about, you know, the mythology and everything like that, about the bulls from that era, as someone who was old enough to, uh, be cognizant, so to speak, uh, at that time, um, more cognizant rather, uh, you know, Jordan was protected and that team was protected. And granted, as, the as time went on and as the years went on and as media access went on that got chipped away but at the same time too he was still it's not like it is today right it's not the twitter era and what we're in right now and and so yeah i just it's 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 fantastic it's it's even even more than just the the content sports desert that we're in right now it is something that we've all wanted to see for so long. If you are an NBA head and probably I would even say that even beyond that, you know, Michael Jordan was such a huge, massive icon in pop culture in general that, you know, I think, I think beyond NBA fans and basketball and sports fans, people want to see it. So the origin as I have it is that, in the season of 1997 to 1998, the NBA, along with a kind of cavalcade of a bunch of documentarians, were given access to shoot this final year. Um, I, I would say unprecedented access, but it was in collaboration with the NBA, with Jerry Krause, um, and with the Bulls franchise, and most importantly with Jordan. But the access was given with the understanding that this footage is not going to come out immediately. We don't even know if it will ever come out. And if and when it does come out, there will be a mutual agreement 
about how this is presented, which, you know, it reminds me of Wu-Tang making that record and then shipping it off into space or, or whatever. Well, no, you know, it, let, let's get, let's remember uh, that one dude. What's his name his, bought it? Yeah. The douchiest douche and whoever douched. Yeah. Uh, bought it, but yeah. But he bought it with the agreement that no one can listen to it but him. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that was the contract between them. Mm-hmm. He he hasn't like released it on you know, like Bandcamp or something. Um, <laughs> it, 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 he has it for himself. He's just a piece of shit. So I'm just, I'm blown away that the movie was made. Um, let's go into a couple things that happened in this episode before we bring in Bob Ryan. Mm-hmm. There's an interaction between Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson. Jackson is is adamant that he's probably not returning to the Bulls in 97-98. Um, you know, there's a back and forth between them. Jackson goes into uh, Reinsdorf and Krause's office. I think they're all three in a room. And Krause says to him, this is going to be your last year here. I don't care if you win 82 games. So for the people who do not follow basketball. Even, and even I had this question. How does someone arrive at that sentence? He's basically saying, I do not care if you make me more money. I do not care if you provide more accolades, another banner on the rafters. You are gone after this. Ego. I mean, you know, first and foremost, it's ego. Uh, the tension obviously, as you said, immediately created by these, by, by, at that point, six, I mean, going for the sixth title is, you know, it's easy to like speculate and it's easy to project and all these things, but like to really be inside of that, I can only imagine. But at the same time too, it goes to, you know, credit given. And, and it's funny because I, I, you know, to give a little bit of a backstory to some extent, you know, you are a diehard Chicago Bulls fan. Let's, let's get that out of the way. I'd like to believe that I'm coming to it from a more objective place in that when it comes down to it, you know, I do hear all of the Bulls fans in the documentary and in my anecdotally in my own life who, Oh, Jerry Krause, this and that and what have you. And I'm not, I'm not here to necessarily, you know, stand for, for Jerry Krause completely, but the man did put together a roster that won six titles. Like that's not nothing. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and of course, Jordan touches upon it in terms of the, the, what's more important, the players or the organization or, or the totality of the whole enterprise and, you know, people say things in the heat of the moment. And it's also alluded to with Jerry Krause that he had a Napoleon complex, which I thought was rather fascinating. And, you know, these guys who are both physically and metaphorically giants uh, with this small pudgy man and I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead but you know (laughs) seriously like like this guy is like excuse me like yeah Mike you were you were dropping 63 against the Celtics 
but what was that getting you? You know, you know, three, you know, you won it out or, or out in the first round, eight seeds. So, you know, but, it was, but, but it's basically like, it's like two people in a relationship and, you know, they, they grow and sometimes one outgrows another. And, and even if the two grow in, in, in equal measure, sometimes you have someone that says, I think I could do this without you. Uh, I actually, I don't think I'm a better person with you. And this is the case where Jordan and Kraus were entwined. They, they could not exist without one another. You saw what it looked like when Jordan, as we're going to get to with Bob Ryan, as Jordan went against the Celtics um, in the 80s and, and the Pistons in the late 80s, when he did not have a support system. It didn't work. And Kraus, if he hampered Jordan, if he if he diminished his drive, if he didn't let him go to UNC and rehabilitate on his own, who knows what that player looks like? You know, in both ways they fed each other. And by the time it's it's 1997, 1998, yes, they are going for history. Yes, they are going for a sixth title, but they're both just absolutely done. I mean, they, they want no part of it. And you can equate the situation to something like Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld goes on for nine seasons. Um, the infamous story there is that they finish the ninth season. It is the most popular show on television ever, ever. And NBC offers Seinfeld and the cast an inordinate amount of money. And they think on it. And they say, ah, you know what? Running this back one more time, even though we're going to get like 20 million an episode, it's not worth it. Spending time with these four people and the showrunners and everyone else and Larry David, it's not worth it. And as fans, we're like, what do you mean you won't? You won't do one more? You won't do one more season? Is it so bad to be around Michael Richards? Which... Maybe we found out that it was so bad. I hadn't heard about that. Wait, what are you talking about? He, you know. Yeah. He's an, you know, he didn't, he didn't mean it. Mm. You know, you know what the problem is when you do that once on stage, everyone in the audience is like, how many times are you doing that at home (laughs) and with friends? Um, So quickly before we talk to Bob Ryan, Mm -hmm. um, I want to go over the Scotty Pippen numbers because it's how episode two opens. Pippen says, my day will come. My day will come to be paid. And Pippen says that after this season, the team is told that we would be relieved of our duties, uh, which is a great line. And quickly, the Pippen numbers here. Uh, he was sixth on the Bulls' salary. Um, someone had a good quote that he was the underappreciated Robin to Jordan's Batman. He was second in minutes, rebounds, and points, first in assists and steals. Uh, he was one of 12 kids growing up in the South. Uh, his childhood hero was Julius Irving. In college, he explodes from 6'1 to 6'7 in a matter of 18 months. Um, November 7, 1987 is when he makes his NBA debut. In 1991, he signs an eight-year contract, making him the 122nd best-paid player um, he took that contract, he said, to take care of his family. 
uh, regardless of his future health. So these numbers are pretty staggering. I didn't even know this to be true. I knew he got underpaid. The, the hard numbers there, as I, as I just read them, I didn't know all of that. Was that something that, that, that you knew all about? I knew about for sure. And I would be lying if I said I remember the exact specifics of the contract in terms of the exact number. I mean, I knew it was low, but that's offensive. I mean, Scottie Pippen, and to quote him in the documentary and what he says is, I'm one of the best players to ever play the game. I agree. And not to go on too much of a tangent here, but, you know, right now, especially with LeBron at what he does, and I don't want to say necessarily the apex, but doing what he does in the conversation, of course, between the GOAT conversation, uh, there's a lot of the MJ stands who are just like, you know, oh, like they make it sound like Michael Jordan played with like a JV team of a, of a division three school. And even now, Scottie Pippen just does not get the respect that he deserves. And he was and is still arguably the greatest perimeter defender to ever play the game, not to mention his other skills. But then you also start to think about it and you start getting into the context of things of like, obviously, as the documentary mentions, his family situation, which is, you know, it, it's a thing. Um, he came from lower socioeconomic means and he wanted to take care of his family. And that is important. You know, an ACL tear now is a lot different than it was even back then, um, where an ACL, for instance, and I'm just, you know, an Achilles tear is, is completely different. Um, and we'll see what happens with Kevin Durant, of course, but with, with something like a, an ACL tear that would end your career. So it's not, you know, completely ridiculous for him to be like, you know what? I, this locks me in and this is a guaranteed thing. Uh, I also found it though, a little bit, I don't know, disingenuous, with Reinsdorf being Mr. Hey, look, we told him, basically, yeah. this is a bad idea. Like, what? Like, after the he, fact? He, like, yeah, look, look, here's the thing. He, I believe that he said, this may not be a great contract for you. I believe there's a chance he said that. I don't totally believe he said it. I think there's a chance he said that. I don't. But, so, so, let's say we do. Let's just say we do believe him for this, for this exercise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. By the time it's the mid-90s, especially in the year that Jordan leaves, you know, the Bulls win 50-plus games without Jordan, with Pippen at the helm. At that point, as a decent person, how do you not go to Pippen and say, look, this contract you signed is insane. It's, it's complete negligence. Someone like Reinsdorf holds all the cards. And if you are a halfway decent person, you go back to Pippen and you say, look, let me kick you a bonus here because 122nd is outrageous. Oh, it's for, it's, for, for someone who's a top 10 player in the league. It's malpractice. And, and not only that, I mean, like, let's also factor in the agency of his agent and also Scotty on some on some level as well, which we can you know get into later on or now. But what is his agent doing? Like what, like, you know, you know what I mean? Like 
to even negotiate those terms in the first place because when he negotiated, that was 1991. Right. And he was four years in the league, and that was, you know. So the big criticism Pippen faces is that he waits to have his surgery um, at the end of the summer to make a point to upper management. Of course, by waiting this long to have the surgery, he's going to miss the beginning of the year. He made that conscious decision, and, and the criticism he always has received is like, look, we understand you're upset with upper management, but how could you undercut the mission statement of this team? Whoa, 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 hold on. Let's not necessarily that he, Michael has a problem with that. Phil did not. Phil, I, and I commend him for this, and granted, you know, this is according to him, so take that for what it's worth. But Phil, and I think this is, you know, ego management, which was always supposedly his calling card. Uh, and, at, and at the same time, too, looking at the big picture of things, I think that was crucial. Whereas Michael is of the, look, we got to win now and, and, you know, I'll do anything to win and everything like that. And, and But Michael Frank signed a $250,000 ad deal with Nike as a rookie, which was $150,000 more than even the best players signed at the peak of their powers in the NBA at that time. So Michael constantly saying, look at these guys not putting the team in front of their own careers has to be looked at as, look, man, you are getting paid the most. You're on a billboard in Times Square. You're in a movie for Warner Brothers. You 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 are making all of this money. You are an international brand. And, I, and even then, I don't even think you're giving it even enough credit. Like, Michael Jordan, by the end of it, was arguably the most famous person on the planet. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 like, he was like one of the Beatles. I mean, yeah, the, the, I mean, Michael Jackson was in that was in that rarefied era as well. And like in that era, like, you know, Madonna. And then we're talking about like world leaders and stuff like that. But like Michael Jordan was probably even more famous than that. So his argument that these people are putting their own careers in front of the team. It's a fair argument and it's true to his principles, but. His recurring inability to see past himself and his own ambitions uh, is on complete display throughout this documentary. And I, and I say this as someone who adores Jordan and am so grateful to have him in my life as a source of inspiration for me and, and as someone who studied and loved watching those Bulls games growing up. But it's unbelievable the way he chastises Pippen, you know, 25, 30 years removed. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's time we call out Bob Ryan, right? I think that's a wonderful idea. For those who'd like some backstory, Bob uh, became a writer at the Boston Globe back in 1969. He was a national columnist from 88 onward. Uh, you have probably seen him on Around the Horn and throughout different shows on ESPN. Why don't we give him a ring? Let's do it. Bob Ryan, thank you so much for being here. You are uh, the first guest we have had on this podcast. Uh, welcome. Well, well, I'm quite honored. Okay. Before we get into basketball, uh, 
Give me the rundown. How is your quarantine life going? We're on day 97. Mm. Wife and I are well stocked with, and I'm not making this number up. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to take an inventory. I, I, why not? Somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 books are in this house. Right? We have multiple <laughs> bookcases on all three floors. That's a fact. Plus, we've got a year's supply, a backlog, a minimum of New Yorkers and other publications. We probably subscribe to a dozen monthly uh, publications. And we've got enough wine, I think, to get us to the 4th of July. So <laughs> we're ready. We're, we're, we're sucked. And so we're, we're doing okay. Plus, I've been watching. Not I haven't started. We've binged one. I've binged one thing so far. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, two. Curb Your Enthusiasm and Better Call Saul. That's all I remember. But uh, I got so I got plenty of stuff left over uh, to uh, to binge on. You know, the Ryan family is single handedly keeping the publishing industry afloat right now. <laughs> we have been doing that for years, by the way. We've, we, we, we've more than done our share. That, that makes sense as a writer yourself. I, I want to go back to a time uh, where people read a lot more. So the start of this movie is the 97, 98 season, but it very quickly goes back to the summer of 1984 before the NBA draft. You were a beat reporter at the time. Walk us through where the NBA was at at that moment. The NBA was in the midst of a growth period that uh, you can trace pretty accurately to the 79-80 draft or season when Bird and Magic entered. Uh, the, the league was coming out of a, a recession period, a bad image, a lot of drug use, no question. People had a negative image of the league for the most part. Uh, the, the, the two finals in 78 and 79 featuring uh, the Sonics and the Bullets did not exactly capture the national imagination. You know, I covered the <laughs> second one. I didn't do the first one, but I did the second one. I mean, I loved the basketball. I was never a part of the detractors, but I, it was a tough, sell, tougher sell. And then Bird and Magic came in. And now, contrary to popular opinion, they didn't miraculously transform the league into some uh, wonderful uh, viewing spectacle. But as late as 81, when Bird and the Celtics won that championship, it was the delayed tape game on at 11.15 Eastern. Uh, so it, it wasn't, uh, but it was still getting better. And, uh, it, and, and they were setting the table. And then uh, by the 84, uh, the Celtics and Lakers series, that was a big one. That when the Celtics and the Lakers finally met five years into the bird magic era, uh, and it was a seven gamer and there was a lot of intrigue. And I, that, that helped a lot. That's the year of a great bountiful draft with, in which Michael Jordan was a part. Consensus number one, and everyone would have made it, and Rod Thorne himself said he would have made the same pick if he were number one, was Akeem, no H yet, he added the H later, Olajuwon, of, as, as a old a conventional center. The real mystique was the, uh, the thing was the second, intrigue was second pick, Portland. And they took, they needed a big man desperately. And the, the next big man on the board for everybody was Sam Bowie of Kentucky. Well, Sam had an injury-plagued career. Third, it was Michael Jordan, this great phenom from this, but still not, he was still, he was, you know, he wasn't, he was known for winning the, making the winning shot against the Georgetown team in 82. Yes. And then he went on to become an All-American, but um, it was far from the Michael Jordan that he would become. Were you sold on him? Didn't, no, sold to be. I was. I gave my complete blessing to the Elijah one pick. Uh, I, I'd seen Sam. I did not. We had no idea that Sam was going to be such an injury, you know, wrecked uh, person that he became. We had no idea. No, I, I wasn't. But I'll tell you what got my attention 
is um, the Olympics because Bob Knight went way out there, way out there, and to declare Jordan as something very, very special. And uh, to the extent that I think we hadn't heard outside the ACC, you know, the ACC people were big on him. But then again, he's not, let's get this straight, he's not even to this day the most acclaimed ACC player of all time in the eyes of the ACC people. That honor will always belong to David Thompson. Mm. So, you know, when, when ESPN comes off with a poll of the fans and picks him as the greatest college player of all time, it's ludicrous. First of all, the answer is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, i.e. Lou Asindor. Secondly, he's not even the best ACC player of all time. <laughs> the real Michael Jordan blossom. And one more thing, and I'll shut up and let you, you know, let you speak, which is remember the famous line as it transpired, the only person who could hold Michael Jordan under 20 was Dean Smith. <laughs> all right. Now, where do we go from there? So, so... Out of curiosity, you were covering the Celtics at that time, and in, obviously you're traveling in NBA circles and what have you, and it's somewhat touched upon within the documentary about how the Bulls as an organization were viewed at that time. From your vantage point, you know, as I said, within NBA circles, what was it, was it similar to like what the Knicks are considered right now, which is great town, great fans, but you know, uh, a wasteland in terms of an organization to just play for? Blah. They were just blah. They, they had been in the 70s. They had a certain mystique. That's one of the most interesting teams in the history of the league with those early 70s Bulls of Mata with Love and, and uh, Walker and Van Leer and Sloan and so forth. Uh, the team that couldn't get by the, the, the Lakers or the Bucks, but they were really a fascinating team. Anyway, but that all ended. And then they just descended into blah. Nothing. They were uh, they they weren't a farce or a joke as the Clippers were or as the Knicks are today. It was just uh, they're much like like the Bullets have been for thirty years. Nobody cared, and uh, you know, and it's too bad because Chicago has it, it turned out to be a very vibrant city. No, um, no, they were not, and and they were even viewed as on the verge that 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 they weren't one player away. In other words, you know, right. no, not at all. But they weren't. Uh, they they were just there <laughs> <laughs> so when they I, I mean when they hired a gm from the white Sox, what what like what well, was, no, was that that's, see? That, that's part of this story that uh, it was you know you need to know the full story uh it was portrayed jerry weinsdorf was saying i hired him he was a scouting for the white Sox. yes he was he was also i met jerry kraus back when i started covering the league in 1969-70 he was a scout for the bullets he had delivered Earl Monroe to the Bullets, among other things. Uh, he was, he, maybe he was, I forget who he was with, it doesn't matter. But he had been with the Bullets, he made his bones. And I, look, there are th three, let me, I have to position myself, full disclosure. To the best of my knowledge, and I'm not claiming to be omniscient on this, but to the best of my knowledge, there were three certified FOJ among the media, friends of Jerry. Ira Burkow of the New York Times, Joe Gilmartin of the Phoenix Gazette, and yours truly. We hit it off from day one. He appreciated my enthusiasm. He was open with me. We we got along on a, a, a this professional respect and on a personal level. So I'm very defensive about the image of, of Jerry Krause. He was in fact a baseball scout I, 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 as well as a, he was a two sport guy. He, he was a you know he, anyway. I have a strong residual interest in protecting the image of Jerry Krause. I wish he had never made the infamous statement about organizations, you know, and all that. But, but so don't I, have I <laughs> This was not, this was a basketball guy that had been hired as the GM. Trust me. Okay. You know, I think he wishes he didn't say that. 
he tried to defend and in the piece he defends himself and we'll never know jerry you know r.i.p a couple of years ago we'll never be able to defend himself now again he claimed he was misquoted that the person who originally quoted him as saying that I don't know if it's Rick Tellender or not, and I like Rick, we're all friends, but I don't know. The, left a key word out of the thing that he didn't say that uh, organ, the players and coaches uh, win championships, organizations do. He claimed players and coaches alone didn't win championships, coaches, and that the word alone was left out. Well, I, if that's the case, he was unfairly portrayed. That's a very important distinction. But and that that thing was hung around his head in the neck for until his deathbed. Um, so we'll never know if he made, if he was, you know, that was revisionist history, that quote, but, you know, but, and, or not. But that truly did haunt him. Yes, without question. So then did you have a relationship with him in, in his later years throughout. up until? His- yeah, throughout. I mean, I could pick up the phone and call Jerry Krause mm-hmm. and if I wanted to and, and, and have him get through. And we, we could, you know, we'd be old, we'd, you know, by that time it'd be 15, 20 years in the thing, reminiscences and everything else, you know. No, I had a, I was, and I was, listen, Jerry Krause, no, he can't get credit for Michael Jordan. That was Rod Thorne. And even Rod Thorne admitted how lucky he was that the Olympics took place after the draft and not before, or else there's no doubt that the, the Rockets would have changed their mind, you know, after the Olympics, but they got, so they lucked into him in a sense, you know, fine. And, and he was gone and Jerry was now the GM. Jerry built the rest of the team. He assembled a team that enabled Michael to win a, a brilliant draft day trade for Scottie Pippen. You saw that in the, in, in the uh, show. Drafting uh, Horace Grant, the Cartwright trade, because Charles Oakley had a really a, a lot of staunch, staunch fan base and a staunch image, and a, he was a good friend of Jordan's, but he knew that, that they needed what Cartwright could bring, and that was a great trade. He put that team together, then Pax and on and on, Kerr. They were all Jerry Krause. But we all know that absent, and, and you know, you needed Michael. But believe me, Jerry does, he'll, still, he'll never get the credit he deserves because he was trashed in the book, the Sam Smith book, when they allowed, you know, and I'm, by the way, I'm not knocking Sam. Sam and I are friends too. But he wrote that book, Jordan Rules, and all the thing about crumbs and all the portrayal. It, it just didn't give Jerry a chance to defend himself at all. And and uh, people, you know, uh, and I don't think he's going to come. He's not going to come out of this uh, documentary looking good at all because he's already been portrayed as the villain and the arch enemy and and the pinata, the whole thing, you know. So he's not. Gonna, so there's going to be just a few of us left to try to defend his honor. That's what I wanted to ask you about. In these first two episodes, what did you make of the portrait they painted of him? There was a cursory attempt at, at uh, Jerry. I thought the best thing that came out of it that I hope people focus on was, I believe it was Steve Kerr, who, of course, is brilliant always. Steve Kerr, who said something about, yes, he, he, he uh, made, did all these good things, but he couldn't get out of his own way, quote mm-hmm. unquote. That's a pretty good way of describing Jerry. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry was... Uh, sensitive about uh, his his appearance. He was sensitive about his his place in that basketball jock world. You know, here's this short, round, uh, nerdy, you know, sort of image guy. He wasn't a nerd, but you know. But I mean, who? How did he? They probably all wondered, how did you get here? You know, where where did you ever play? What did you? Who did you ever coach? You know, he. But he. I mean, he knew he was defensive about his image. He knew that. And um, he was, he had one good patron, which was, who was Jerry Weinstorf, you know, other than that. And he was lucky to have that, but he was very defensive about it. He's not going to come off well here. There's no way that he can survive this, uh, that, that, uh, this thing, if, as it goes on. And now again, then again, the real, 
as we get deeper into it and we get back to 1997, 98 without all the flashbacks and get to what, what exactly did take place? Why did the two juries decide it had to end, you know, and, 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 and how adamant they were and, and what a weird thing it was to make that kind of declaration. You know, even if you go 82 and 0, if that's what he really told Jackson, you're not going to be the coach. I don't understand that thinking myself. You know, I, 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 I agree to that. He never gave you a rationale for that. No, I, I didn't. No, I no, not really. Actually, I think it was about age and breakup, and figured you know uh, that they were getting older and all that. But Michael still had an awful, as we learned, Michael still had an awful lot of gas left in the tank. You know, Michael had hit thirty. Yeah, he had. I don't know. It's it's a shame. So it's he's hard to defend on that basis. But I just want to just remind people he constructed a team that enabled Michael to get those first three rings for sure. So. The documentary goes to lengths to show the phenomenon that Michael Jordan was in his rookie season. What was the reaction of the, you know, blue bloods, so to speak, of the NBA at that time, especially on the Celtics who were, you know. Tell you that um, in his first appearance in Boston Garden, uh, Celtics beat them. He had, I believe, I'm pretty willing, 29. You know, it was, it was with, with, with some sizzle. You know, it was a sizzling 29. It got Larry's attention. And I don't have to tell you what Larry's last name is. If you don't know, you know, why even watching the world else, right? It got Larry's attention to the point where Larry Bird that night said that this is the best player I have ever seen. Now, he is preaching from the mount because he knows that it's he and Magic who run that league at that point. This is five years into the Bird Magic era, Okay. The 84-85 season. I don't know what month it was, whether it was December or November or January of the season, whatever. That's the year. He gets After one game and 29 points, Larry Bird says, and I mean, like, am I excited about to get to that keyboard to get this one out there? You know, of course. And uh, he said, it's the best player I've ever seen. He said, this is something different. He, you know, I, he knew that he and Magic, their game was based on, on, on being, I won't say landlocked, but, you know, it was a terrestrial game. Michael, Michael's game was more, a little bit more in the air, a little more elevated, a little more. And, but he did. So people came out of last night thinking because they saw the bird clip when he did declare, which he did after the uh, 63 point game, which we're going to get to, of course, that he said, this is God, this guy's is Michael Jordan, that that was his anointment. No, he anointed Michael the year before after one viewing. That's really? that because he, because he's being a basketball savant. Uh, recognize, oh my God, we're, this is something new has come along now. Something new is here. Was he threatened by that? No, he embraced it because now it gave him yet another thing to, oh, let me, he had some fantastic games in Chicago later on uh, the next year. Oh, yeah. oh, he loved playing. He loved it. He, he knew I'll do it my way and, and, and I'll, you know, I'll show you how to, well, how I play basketball, what I can bring to the table, Michael, and you do it your way and let's go. Oh, no, he respected it. Oh, you think he wasn't a little bit envious of Michael's physical gifts? Of course he was. But not. But he was envious of Michael's physical gifts, but but he also was respectful of Michael's intellectual gifts as well. Um, and, and it was something to match him, you know, yet another person to match up with. When he started out, his target was Dr. J. He needed to prove himself against Dr. J. He did that in his rookie year. That was settled right away. Sorry, Philadelphia fans. Right away, Larry was better than Dr. J in 79-80, okay? So get that in your head. That, that was dismissed early. And then it was nobody except that it was uh, he and Magic. You know, they, he and Magic had this inherent uh, competition. And then here comes Michael, gave something for both of them to, 
to you know measure themselves against. <laughs> and it's and it's interesting that we're talking about this with Larry uh, because, you know, I, as you said, which I wonderful way to put it, he was he was more terrestrial than uh, than Michael was, and but the one thing that I always seem to hear when the two are compared and their respect for each other was their will to win at, at, at all costs, so to speak. And when it gets into the, when the documentary gets into the whole aspect about uh, Michael breaking his foot, um, you know, did Larry or the Celtics have, a, have, what was their take on, on basically our first case of load management? Uh, as it's now called. I don't recall then, any discussion. They were going about their business. And yeah. remember what year it was. It was 85, 86. And in, from January of 80, roughly the middle of January, particularly I'll start, it starts with a game against the Lakers in, in mid-January when Walton comes off the bench and immediately blocks a Kareem shot and the crowd went crazy, okay? From that point on, the best team in the history of the NBA was on display. The best team pre-three-point mania, all right? I'll give the Warriors their due because the game's so different. You notice in the 63-point game, there'll be no three-point shots. But anyway, we'll go again that. Okay, the best team in the history of the NBA, in my humble opinion, no, it was 85-86 Celtics. They're just going about their business, trashing people night in, night out, night in, night out, all of January, February, March. They're not worried about what's happening with Michael Jordan. They're not worried about that. They're paying no attention to it. They were Until they were confronted with him on the first game of the of the three, five-game five series, which we'll get to. Uh, that's all. No, no discussion. wasn't part of it. Nobody cared. They just going about their business. This documentary is so much about greatness and the idea of a team and Jordan achieving and striving for greatness at every turn. And I'm just thinking about now the Celtics in that period. You're covering them. You're covering them on a day-to-day basis, which is a grueling, intensive fucking job to be there every day. But but since you were there every day, when you're looking back. Why do you think they were so great? I, they, because they think they, they, they have one, they only have few regrets about that season, naturally. One, they did have. Uh, we could have won 70. They took some nights off. So they did. They took some nights off, they, either individually or collectively. They kind of, they punted some games, particularly in December. They, I don't think they, somewhere along the way, it occurred to them, we're not just really good. We're special. We can be historic. I mean, it's not like anybody sat down and articulated it. They just seemed to grasp it. And that happened in January. I'm telling you, not in December, including, you know, they had a 25-point loss, a a point squander against the Knicks on Christmas Day. (laughs) You know, so that's how – they get careless at times, you know, a little frivolous. But once they realized – how good they could be. They wanted to reach that level every single night and, and, and have take no prisoners. Once they achieved, they didn't start out the season with a take no prisoners mode. Had they had, I'm telling you, they win 70. Right? <laughs> and, and the only regret is they didn't win 70. Okay. Well, but from the, if, oh, if only, I mean, Sam, if only I could roll back some of those for people who are younger that never saw it, that what they were doing in February, March and April and May and in, 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 in 1986, you've never seen any better team with the possible equation of the 86, 87 Lakers the next year, the greatest series that never was, by the way, was the 85, 86 Celtics against the 86, 87 Lakers. Mm. But that's another story. So I just think once they realize we, we, we have, we owe it to ourselves to be, 
transcendent, you know, the be great. And, and, and they didn't start out thinking that way, but they realized what they were capable. And by the way, I think that, um, the 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 ultimate trump card for that was having Walton when they when when they all realized how how much he could contribute that no team look there've been great six men Havlicek as a six man was the, is the, is the standard and and others but nobody ever came off the bench and changed games the way Bill Walton did in eighty five eighty six in in that six man capacity it's unique in six man annals and it gave them uh, the greatest one two center punch without any dispute in the history of the league with Paris and Wall. So uh, let's bring it to the the, the series of uh, 86, uh, Bulls versus Celtics. What was the attitude of the Celtics going into this? I mean, it's Michael Jordan's coming out party as we look back on it. But at the same time, too, at that time, you know, he was obviously known. But, you know, were they taking it lightly? And then at the same time, Specifically, someone like Dennis Johnson, who is considered uh, one of the greatest defenders in the history of the league, you know, did he did he see what was coming? Did he have any idea, really? The answer is no. I don't think this is my. I'm speaking I, I, on behalf of, unfortunately, the deceased. I love Dennis Johnson. Um, no, um, you're talking about a series between a team that went 67 and 15, and which was rampaging through the league in the last two months of the season, and had won its last. 13 home games in a row by an average margin of 16 points. A team that had lost one home game all year, one home game all year in, in, in early December to Portland. And, and, and uh, there, was, there was, you know, 40 and one, uh, 38 and 30, 37 of them were in Garden, three were in Hartford, all right? But against the team that was 30 and 52. Michael Jordan, I know Michael Jordan, but they most of the season without him. So, of course, they went to it. Now, I can't believe that they thought it was going to be a real, real big problem. Now we get to game one. What happens in game one? Well, Michael goes off for 49. <laughs> now, the Celtics win with it. It wasn't a great strain. They, uh, but I remember a second about that game was DJ, you mentioned him, uh, was scoreless from the floor in the first half and went seven for seven in the second half. That was typical of DJ. That's the kind of way he played sometimes. But difference in the game, though, and this is very important to stress from an artistic standpoint. It was a piggy 49. It was a clear out, clear out, clear out, clear out, you know, and, and, and it almost it was counterproductive. But in the end, they, the, the, the game was not, you know, I forget the score, but whatever the score was, the Celtics were in no peril. But it was an interesting sideshow. Michaels was a very interesting, and I do remember writing, I believe my lead had something to do with fasten your seatbelt, folks, you know, with this guy, all right? But, you know, it's going to be okay, folks, you know, but fasten your seatbelt. That was on Thursday night. Next game's on, as is the NBA want, Sunday, right? Sunday afternoon. Thank God, by the way, journalistically, that, that this game was on Sunday afternoon with a one o'clock Eastern starting time. And you know what happened from there. The game comes out and it's a completely different, out of the flow, Michael Jordan just playing basketball properly with his teammates, knowing when to shoot, when to pass, what shots to take, what shots not to take. Everything just so inherently natural and normal. It was not the same kind of game as he played on Thursday night. It was a, it was a much more sophisticated and, and alert and, 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 and properly respectful basketball game. And it resulted in 63 points, 22 field goals, 19 out of 21 from the line. Um, it, and it, it was, now I know this is the guy who's the reigning rookie of the year. We know that. And he's got this image and he's done this was the true coming out party for Michael Jordan at the tail point. I don't think, I don't see how anybody can argue that, that this is when Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan. That's when this whole thing took root. There are so many people 
in that period of sports journalism that rendered Jordan as that thing you said, a sideshow, someone who's deeply entertaining, but sometimes plays this kind of piggy self-serving style of basketball. Was that second game the moment where you thought to yourself, maybe he's more than a sideshow? Yes, but the thing is, it didn't take right away. Uh, it showed what he could do, but I don't think he factored it in. Now, this is, once again, this leads to my theory about the difference between how he got to the pinnacle of his profession eventually and how LeBron has risen to his in, in our time, which is that I don't think Michael still really wanted to share as much as he should have. I think that Michael didn't really win in the end until uh, really win until he learned how to properly share. He's making those passes to Paxson. He's making those passes to Kerr, you know, that it became very natural to make. I don't think he was ready to do that at the time, uh, even though he had this template from this game. Remember, they lost the game. He's probably thinking I should have taken more shots. You know, I'm thinking at that time, you know, they lost the game. That's the one thing that people, it always amuses me. People forget the final score, folks, was Boston 135. Chicago 131, and ironically, I, I love this juxtaposition. The key the score was 131-131, and the key basket of the game was scored by a guy who, as I said, his game was as, as a Studebaker's, a 1955 Studebaker was to Jordan's Porsche. Jerry Seesting takes his simple inside-out pass and hits a foul line jumper, which was the go-ahead basket after all that time. I mean, it couldn't have been more methodically old-school, you know, Midwestern or, you know, backboard and driveway shot than Jerry Seesting, of all people, uh, making a winning shot. Then it was a uh, icing on the cake, pick and roll from Bird to Parrish, and he hits 12-footer and he win the game. Anyway, I don't think Michael, it took, it showed what he was capable of doing. I, you'll have to ask Michael, uh, you know, that question. But I don't think it took completely um, right away. But boy, that day he had it. That was astonishingly phenomenal basketball. He wore out people. You know, it's funny, they're great. I, I, I love this. I, in my notebook, I noted, of, of, of what, what Celtic individual you think fouled him the most uh, to, to get him to that line uh, for the 21 free throw attempts? It, was Bill, it was Bill Walton because of the him continually beating the guys who were guarding him on the perimeter, Walton had to try to play the, hey, Bill, defense. And and he wound up fouling Michael four times out of his six fouls that he fouled out with. Isn't that funny? I, I, I watched that game recently. And, yeah, he gets isolated sometimes, Bill, Bill does on Jordan, and it is a horror show. It is an actual – I mean, it's terrible. I mean, you feel bad for him. Bill was not pleased. And with the only guy who had a modicum of success within the context of the 58 minutes against them, when he might have, you know, slowed him down a little, or else he could have 70, was Danny, who was the quickest guy they had. Danny was the quickest. Speed was the only hope, you know, about it. Obviously, Larry, forget it, you know. And, uh, you know, Larry got mixed to him on switches. And they, you see that one. They always love to show that one. Bigger, the bigger, the bigger, the bigger, the, you know, step back on Larry. Yeah, yeah, Larry's not going to win that one. There's no doubt about that. Although down the road, I can tell you in games in Chicago, Larry would have his way. But, oh, you know, my, Larry had a very quiet 36 in that game, by the way. Yeah. To go with his usual 9-9, nine, nine, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Moving it up uh, into the second episode and 1987, uh, you know, the Celtics at that time were draft wizards during that era, it seemed like. And did they or in even in NBA circles, did anyone have 
any sort of clue about a small forward from the University of Central Arkansas named Scott Pippen on draft night. Scott, yeah, uh, Scott Pippen. You know, you, know. Uh, you know, if you're doing your draft homework, you know, and I remember I was in a, very much in the midst of, and this is pre-internet, you, you know, that means working the phones and, and working your contacts and, 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 you know, preparing a mock draft was a, always a chore. Uh, it was a very, um, you had to become aware that his, his big breakthrough was in the Norfolk, uh, the Portsmouth tournament. You know, there was a, that was the one where the guys who weren't going to be high up, but were hoping to get to attract the attention of scouts and maybe drafted at all, you know, where, and he just, he just went roared through the Portsmouth tournament, as far as I recall. And uh, and so we were aware that there was this phenomenon out of Central Arkansas that we had never heard about during his entire collegiate career, named Scott T. Pippen from, you know. And so we were, we were but the idea that he would become a Hall of Fame player, you know, and uh, uh, and become the, the, the chief acolyte that, and the, the final piece, the piece that Michael really needed. As every great player does to have to have the Rob the, the, the Robin to the Batman, uh, you know, no, that wasn't known. And but when he went, it did open your eyes when he went fifth, you know. And and then you realize, you know, and Jerry and now you had to be a little wary then because Jerry did have a reputation. As, you know what his nickname was, and it never came out. It never came out, and and I hope it comes out in, in in a benevolent way in which it was bestowed on him by his colleagues, which the, the other scouts and the GMs, the sleuth. And he was his nickname was the Sleuth, and it was because he was secretive. He he did not participate in a lot of mass congregations when they went on the road. And a lot of those guys, uh, I I, learned, I plugged into that fraternity. Bob Ferry Senior and and uh, oh uh, uh, Gene Tremolin, Bumper, his nickname, and all those guys. Uh, Dickie McGuire, the, uh, you know, who talked on the side of his mouth. And uh, I mean, this is oh my God, talk about a treasure chest for a twenty-four-year-old basketball junkie. And Jerry, he didn't hang out with them. The rest of them hung out together. They go out drinking after the games that they scouted in college, whatever it was. Sleuth. He was he was secretive. He kept the secrets, you know. Well, if if the sleuth was you know it was when sleuth drafted him right away, you go, oh, oh maybe there's something to it. Just the respect Jerry Sloan had in the business. See, before all this crumbs crap, you know. I mean, that's why he, he's unfairly portrayed for history. The, there is there's a whole bunch of revisionist history. I think that I think that's kind of what you're alluding to in this documentary. The one part of this episode that 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 David and I were talking about before we got on the phone with you is this, is this contract that Pippen signed in 91, the seven years for $18 million, uh, which I think is about 2.6 million a year. Did it raise eyebrows in, in, in NBA circles or from the Celtics players or front office at that time? I don't, you know, it may have been a, minor conversation I, I don't i don't i just don't recall and I, I mean i'm maybe someone else here can tell you and one of the other beat guys in the times and certainly sam smith and whoever was on the beat in chicago at the time could could remember uh, mark mansell one of those guys but uh, uh i don't think the league was paying a, a whole lot of attention to it until the crescendo you know we could suddenly the you know what the excrement hit the fan prior to that final last dance season you, know, you can say shit, was, Bob. It's okay. You can say right, shit. Well, shit the, well, right, fine. I, I, I was trying to be cute. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I outsmarted myself. When it hit the fan, and and now we're aware that this a big thing is going on in Chicago. Now it's a story. 
you know, I don't know if it was all the time uh, at all. But when when you see the numbers now, I got I am I don't honestly remember being aware that he was the 122nd highest paid player in the league, which now everyone in the world knows after watching the first you know documentary, and it's kind of mind blowing. That was annoying to me, and, and I don't know him well. I knew him a little bit. Uh, no, I actually I knew his partner Eddie. Einhorn a little more than than ever than never, I don't know Ryan Reinsdorf but but what the arrogance of, of saying uh, and I had the quote here with me uh, that I wrote it down I uh, taking notes watching this thing was uh, uh, I well after the contract signed I don't want to see anymore that's it. it I don't it wouldn't even entertain the idea of the injustice and unfairness and how much they owed this guy you know for what he provi- helped provide for them and how much money he had made for his franchise so much more what an investment that was what an incredibly you know ridiculous investment the good investment it was for them for him not to treat Scottie Pippen fairly I I'll never I'll never un- understand that he he was intractable in a way that I think of the NCAA thinking about paying its players there, there, there's an intractability to that sentence that really bothered me well yeah yeah really when i saw it and, and he seemed so comfortable with it it's not like he's did he begin to apologize and god i wish i hadn't been that way i should have you know wouldn't that be nice i mean you know wouldn't that, if, if jerry weinsoff would now say god you know I, if i had to do it over again you know uh, i i think i would have handled that differently boy that but no no, in an imperial manner. I mean, that, that disturbed me last night. That's one of the most annoying things in the whole thing. The whole thing with me was uh, was that. Yeah, it, it definitely seemed disingenuous in the documentary. Michael is in regards to Scotty's surgery late in the summer. Uh, you know, Michael disagrees with Scotty even now um, in in his decision to have the the surgery when he did. Um, and not be there for, you know, part of the season. And then is counteract, uh, you know, uh, Phil claims, you know, he did agree with the decision. And granted, um, that was in the pre-player empowerment era that we're current, you know, that we're currently in right now. Did you recall what other players at the time felt about that decision uh, throughout the league? No, I really don't. And, you know, it's funny when I was thinking about it, when I listened to it and listening to Michael and, and yeah, and address it, you know that we had a very interesting circumstance that would transpire during the 87 playoffs when, when Kevin McHale uh, was playing with what turned out to be a fractured foot that had been injured in a game in February uh, when Larry Nance Sr. stepped on his foot, changed his life. He was never the same player again, ever. He was still competently good some nights, but the, he was on his way to one of the great, uh, you know, he's in the middle of his best season. And uh, anyway, during the finals, uh, you know, he was hobbling and trying to get through it. And Bird actually said, this is where I'm getting at here. So just, just factor it in. I'm just saying that it, it helps. Bird actually, in, in a Q&A session during the finals, if I were Kevin, I wouldn't even be playing. And uh, how about that? So the, the world, the thinking, you know, one great player's mentality, Bird. One other great player's mentality, Jordan. Uh, you know, you have to allow for deviance there. But um, but I, the first thing I thought of when, when, I, when this whole topic came up was, my God, and, and Larry, we all made such a big deal about Larry saying, well, if I were Kevin, I wouldn't even be playing. <laughs> just, just um, I don't know, I'm just throwing it out there, you know, just discuss among yourselves, as they say. You know? <laughs> did you make a, why did you guys make a big deal of it? 
What, to, to Mikhail? Well, did you agree with Bird's sentiment, well, or, or did you think that was ridiculous that he would say I that in the it playoff was, series? Uh, I just, it was, see, the, there was a, def, I want to say defeatist, but there was a resignation that I think had set in, obviously with Larry, that we weren't winning that series. And it was, you know, that, the, you know, we didn't have enough weaponry. They went from a bench that included Bill Walton, Jerry Seasting, a healthy Jerry Seasting, and Scott Wedman to a bench that had a no Walton, uh, an injured Seasting as well, I believe, and Darren Day and Fred Roberts as your key guys off the bench. Sorry, you know, and, and hobbled Kevin McHale, you know. So Larry, I, I think it was Larry was, God, I want to say gave up because he had a couple of good, but you know, I mean, he was resigned to reality and he was, and was forthright enough to say it. That's all I can say. You wrote the book on Larry Bird. I'm going to say it's the book. There are many, but 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 we'll just call yours the because you're the only one on this podcast. Um, I'm curious as you watch the film last night. You know they say in the beginning that this footage from the '97 '98 season is unprecedented access, and and it made me think about the kind of access you had in the '70s, in the '80s, in the '90s, even in in, in this century. I'm interested. How do you? How does that compare with your experiences of being there on a day-to-day basis, and how we kind of approach these players in 2020? I mean, it's radically different. You, it's almost like you're talking about an era of the King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table talking to the young <laughs> today. You know, well, I'm actually, I was, you know, I, when I was going out with Guinevere, you know, no, I'm telling you. It is so different. The 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 day to day interaction. I'll just give you a try as succinct as possible an ex- example of my daily life uh, on and the game day and non game day. On non game days in the from in the seventies, particularly in the seventies, it, it, it pretty much the same thing in the in, in the eighties. Uh, get to practice about an hour before practice. Go in the locker room, just shoot the breeze. No notebooks. You know, just just we've new an acquaintance. How you doing? You knew everybody's. Uh, uh, wife's name, girlfriend's name, kids' names, what car they drove. Uh, you know, you just, you were renewing your acquaintance. Uh, then you'd pop into the coach's office and, and any quick update before the practice. Watch the entire practice. Watch the entire practice. And then afterward is when you pull out the notebook. And it was a notebook, maybe a little cassette tape recorder as time going on. And did the interview, the official interview you're going to do to write whatever you're going to write. Game night, you get there, first of all, the Celtics had a rule in the Heinsohn era, two hours for the game, you got to be in the locker room. So we get in the locker room two hours for the game with them, and it didn't close until 45 minutes before. They shoot the breeze, and, and you know, the same thing, you know, and, and for the most, if you wanted to be in there, no problem. All right. Uh, and then after the game, the, the, the access, you went in the locker room, you did your interviews, you went by, all right, fine. Uh, there was no, there were no media, uh, uh, group media sessions until the playoffs when they needed, you know, space. All right. All right. Well, tell them, imagine today there's no, there's no locker room access before the game, before the practice. You're lucky if you can see them shoot the free throws in the final five minutes of the practice. Uh, you, you know, you don't have a chance. Oh, 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 travel. Did I mention travel? Oh my God. Okay. Um, all commercial travel. When I first started, this is the Celtics, um, First of all, you, they, they checked themselves in. They were given tickets. They checked themselves in. They checked their own bags. They, they, they were no, we're all flying commercial. The Boston Celtics, uh, there, there's a Hilton Airport Hotel on Logan Airport. 
And they were given permission by the Hilton people to park their cars in the Hilton lot and then take the van over to the terminal to save the airport fee parking of $5 a night, okay? Which they all happily took advantage of. Uh, that's to just start that. You flew with them, you, you got to the airport, uh, uh, you rode on the bus with them to the air hotel, you went to the practice with them. Uh, once they started shoot arounds, you went to shoot arounds with them. You, wrote, you went to the game. There were times, even as late as the 80s, when they would hold the bus after, after the game to, for the media guy to get back on the bus after writing a story. They would hold the bus. Imagine that today. <laughs> so you call these things to beat guys. It's like, how many times, they can't, how could they begin to imagine? So naturally, you develop relationships that are difficult to attain today, you know. And, and so um, that's part of your answer. When did the shift occur? Oh, the two biggest things that changed the social aspect and, and the writing aspect of the NBA, in the history of the NBA, the media relationship with teams, two things. One, charter flights, which were unheard of in the time, except for the New York Knicks. They were the only team that ever chartered. Two, the Chicago Bulls. Because what you saw and what you're seeing in that video and, and, and that doc is exactly the, 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 the cutoff line. Those crowds gathering, you know, that you saw, all that stuff. The Celtics attracted a lot of that themselves in the, in the 80s with the Bird, McHale, Paris team, the Green, okay? And they used to call them the Green People. No matter where they went, maybe no matter where they would cut to the hotel at 11 o'clock at night, there would be some people, but not in the numbers that later attract the Bulls attracted. But it was the beginning of it. The Celtics were the, were the appetizer for it all. Okay. But uh, so, so, yes, but the Bulls, that's where, you know, they cut off practice access. Uh, they made it more, more, more formal. And then when they built the Berto Center, the practice center. They fixed it so that the parking lot was out of our sight. So you didn't even know who was and wasn't there. You know mm. what I mean? It was just, it was clear that there was a us and them mentality. Now, my guy, Jerry, was very much in favor of that. Don't worry. My guy, Jerry Krauss, my FO, I'm an FOJ. So, you know, I understand that's the sleuth right there that played right into his MO. Michael, of course, was great. So it's that. It never looked back. And the other team that had a little influence because of the charter thing, though, were the Pistons, the bad boy Pistons. We still weren't in a big a wholesale charters as late as the mid-'80s, even the Bulls time. But the Pistons, and the third thing probably, right, so, no, was, with the Mavericks, well, that's a whole other matter with, with Cuban catering to every whim of the player, you know, and all mm -hmm. that. Like, that's different. But anyway, so yeah. charter flights, when we no longer traveled with them, and everybody became merry at whores, which I'm one, you know, and, uh, and, and the other one. But in the old days, you just, you were on, you were booked with them at the hotel. You know, when you got to the hotel and they handed out the keys, you got one of the keys because you were booked with them. That's not, that's a so <laughs> Being booked, spending a prolonged amount of time with the bad boys Pistons truly is my hell. So I, I'm, I would never want to do that personally. That's just as someone who grew up in Chicago. That's my preference. Um, even, even if I had to report on them, this this kind of brings me to this idea of Jordan as an international sensation. And I know you have a lot of experience covering the Olympics. I believe you're even there in '92 with the Dream Team. Oh, I was at the Dream Team. I would say, and Jack McCallum has written the definitive book, which anyone who's interested at all should read, called The Dream Team. It's, it's a perfectly wonderful book. Um, he was there from the very, very beginning, first bounce of the ball and 
La Jolla, as was I, but he had better access, uh, as it turned out, than I thought I had good access. <laughs> you know, Jack, Jack had, he still, he, but anyway, so yes, I was there for the entire Dream Team experience. What do you remember about it? Uh, it was a traveling rock circus. They were uh, beyond belief. They were the, they, 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 they were a complete separate issue. Uh, they dominated the Olympics uh, more than anyone in any sport, uh, there was nothing to compare comparable. There's no other sport, uh, track and field, swimming, gymnastics, whatever that with that within their world, there was anything close to what the the, this, the uh, dream team was. But that was from present from the whole uh, first tournament of the Americas in Portland. You know, from the very first practice, the very first uh, game when when the Cubans wanted to have a picture taken before the game. You know, just to get it over with, you know, and be able to tell the grandchildren and uh, and then go out and take their beating. You know, and I said the whole theme of the Olympics for the dream team was beat me with me, take my picture. And and that's 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 what the Olympics were about. But they they put on a show for people. They they they, they did what they're they were asked to do by Boris Stankovich, who was the reason there was a dream team, it had nothing to do with the US losing the soul and soul to the Russians. People will never get that through their thick, stupid heads. But uh, it had nothing to do with that, it had everything to do with Boris Stankovich, pre of FIBA, wanting the bar raised for the world. He wanted the Americans to get involved to show the world what the bar was was, and that's how you wind up with uh Dirk Nowitzki, Manu Ginobili, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's all because of the dream team. All these kids watching folks from their native countries play against the absolute best. Correct. Raising the bar, showing where they got to be. They, they, they thought to be the American college kids in Seoul was important. You know, was one thing. And and if we picked the right team, if John Thompson hadn't stupidly not put in shooters, had not taken his own point guard, you know. Charles Smith hadn't done a lot of things. We probably would have had a good enough team to win there anyway. But that's another story. I'm sorry, I, I did digress. <laughs> and I would be I would be remiss to not mention the Spanish national team, who was always held the high standard as well. Were you were you um, privy uh, to the the infamous practice game? That uh, no, I I I learned about it. You know, I mean, learned about it ex post facto. People babbling about it. Uh, Jack McCallum has gotten us detail, and that's another reason to get the book. Um, no, no, I, I wasn't. But I remember. But the one story I love too. That was a great one, of course. Uh, the other one is after the first scrimmage with the, the collegiate eight in La Jolla that that were picked, the all stars that were picked to play against them, give them competition, and mm -hmm. the collegiate beat them. And the star of the show was Bobby Hurley. And, and to the point where supposedly the uh, uh, they're all going, uh, you guard him, I don't want to guard him. You, know, you guard him, I don't want to guard him. Uh, well, it was the most, um, it was almost as if, uh, uh, well, Chuck Daly had, it, it was his dream because now he had immediately had their attention, immediately. And because you know what happened the next day when they played, scored it off 30 to two at start. The, and I don't have to tell you who had the 30, who had the two. But that, if the, the, the those kids had, and, God love Larry. I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously biased toward Larry Bird. But at the press conference in Barcelona, after the gold medal, after they'd beaten Croatia, who took who went out of his way to thank those collegians for helping them get ready? Larry Bird. Thanked them for the job that they did to help him get ready. And and so uh, you know, that was I'm just little little advertisement for my guy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, but, but Bob, do you want to also tell people where they can buy your book? 
while we're here? Well, that, I'm afraid it's that, it's that infamous uh, ogre of, of the world, Amazon. Uh, it's the only place I know where you can get Drive or you can get my book, Scribe, uh, My Life in Sports, which I get into the details of the Olympics a lot because I do love the Olympics. Mm. Which, which, of course, covers, uh, and as we've stated, you've, you've covered the Olympics, the Celtics, of course, and uh, the Patriots. And I have to ask, do you see any similarities uh, between the Bulls then and what we're witnessing right now with the Boy, end of an era, especially with Brady going to the Tampa Bay I Buccaneers? Would say, I would have said categorically no if it were just Brady good sex city. But since it's more than just Brady and, and the defense appears to be have been dismantled in, in, in certain aspects up front and in a, a linebacking core, leaving them with maybe the best secondary left in the league, but, you know, my God, they're going to have a lot of work to do, I think. Um, it's eerily frightening. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, you know, and, and once again, there is a, and there's a mastermind, you know, it's, it's all, it's not, this, this one, what we don't know, you know, somebody, what we don't know is because Belichick is such a mysterious figure. He's a combination of Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause and, and Kraft all rolled up into one. You know what I'm saying? Think about it. Think about it. <laughs> it's all about him. We don't know where Kraft is coming down on this. We don't know if Kraft could have uh, thrown money at, at, uh, at told Bill. No. You, I'm, uh, we have to keep Tom. We don't know. We don't know anything. Oh, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, absolutely. But I mean, Belichick, well, whatever he's going to, we're going to find out a lot of things this year, you know, for sure. Uh, and that's, but that's a very interesting parallel. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because as fans, and in your case, as a fan and a reporter, I think we all have this feeling of the show must go on. You know, the party shouldn't end. Yeah. And, and you know, later in the documentary, they equate, uh, you know, the Bulls of the 90s to the show of the 90s and Seinfeld. And Seinfeld is, is a thing that <laughs> existed and dominated, you know, the, the television for nine years, 10 years. And it left at the peak of its powers. You, you could equate it to Beatles saying Abbey Road is the last thing they're going to do. <laughs> And I think everyone at home, whether they're watching uh, Jordan play or they're listening to a Beatles record, no one wants it to end. They want it to keep going and going and going until it's basically unrecognizable. So you're a national columnist in 97, 98. And clearly Jordan has more left in the tank. <laughs> But I'm interested, what did you make of that decision to end it? Yeah. Well, once again, I'm back to my fondness for Jerry Krause. And, and, and um, I wasn't, I couldn't, didn't quite agree or understand. I, I, I you know, it's, it's just a very difficult thing to defend. And by the way, we went through it in Boston. We went through it exactly with the big three. Right. And, and Dave Gavitt, uh, it, it was a difficult, difficult thing to 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 uh, supervise, if you will. And he didn't know what to. Frankly, he you know, and he's not here to defend himself now. Unfortunately, another good friend of mine, but uh, he he didn't know how to handle this. He worried about uh, how he's going to finesse the ending of the big three. It turned out they let it die. You know, they went through it. They got as much out of it as they could, which was uh, which basically was well. In the ninety, they. 
they had a, I'm trying to think now. Yeah, they had a great start in 90 and then they had injuries. Bird, Bird, they went as far as Larry could take them, quite frankly, because uh, if you go check it out, when Bird was healthy, they were still pretty good right up to 92 in his last year. But when he when he could, because all we, uh, we we used to kid about, uh-oh, every time David Gavitt would tell us, uh, we're going to have a pregame press conference at 6 o'clock, we knew right away Larry's hurt again. You know, it was always a matter of could Larry. Right? So we went through that. Anyway, they did not want to go through. They were earlier than this. They didn't go through that. They, you know, and, and they paid the price. You know, they've never come back. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, right? Oh, they came a little bit closer. There was one little run. Yeah. But they came, they had a little run where they had a chance to be a factor. But essentially, let's face it, they haven't come back. <laughs> right. When, in, in That's fair. The, it's totally fair. Yeah, it's definitely fair. Uh, I'm a Cavs fan, by the way, so that's it's wonderfully fair. Um, <laughs> so, you know, of course, we we have this question that we keep on asking about why they ended it and what have you. Is there anything else, specifically or broadly, that you're you that you're hoping? Any questions that you're hoping to be answered by the rest of the documentary? No, not really. I'm just going to sit back and, and enjoy it and be amused. I'm curious to see. I, I'm told we're being teased by those who have seen it. Oh, boy, where did we get rolling with Rodman? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, from a strictly voyeur standpoint, you know, and somebody that is fascinated with the whole Rodman saga because, you know, we go back to him as a rookie with no tattoos. Right. Not one. No tattoos in ninety uh, in eighty. Uh, uh, you know when he's when when Bird's stealing the ball. You know that was his rookie year, eighty six, eighty seven, and and then of course we have the famous game seven, which I just got to see on TV again the other night when uh, the Celtics win a very epic uh, game seven, and uh, that's when Vinny and and Dantley bang heads and Rodman had to guard Larry in the fourth quarter, and of course he couldn't do it, and then he shoved shut off his mouth after the game, and Isaiah defended him, and all hell broke loose and all that. By the way, you know what the postscript to that was? Um, and that uh, Larry just filed that one away. No, Larry was Mister Diplomat when we got out to L.A. to had a press conference with Isaiah, and he defended. He he saved Isaiah's bacon completely before the national press and gave him, forgive him, and said, "Oh, he's my mother's favorite player," and you know I shouldn't have listened to a rookie, and he took him off the hook. Well. He didn't say anything about Rodman. Next year, guess who the Celtics <laughs> scheduled an exhibition with? In the University of Akron, or Toledo, excuse me, at Toledo, uh, in the first exhibition. They scheduled a, a, a game with the Pistons. Yeah, just an exhibition game, right? See, Larry had 36. Guess who's guarding him? So Larry made his point to, to Rodman. Anyway, I'm curious about watching the Rodman thing evolve because I saw the beginning of the humble, nice kid out of, you know, who had been a janitor at the DFW airport, whose sister was a better player than he was and, and all that, and to become, you know, the ambassador to North Korea. Uh, I'm, you know, so I'm definitely I'm curious about, about Rodman. I hate to tease you because uh, David and I have seen the next few episodes. Um, <laughs> they are fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, so... Anyway, other than that, questions? No, I mean, I watch the teams play. Uh, you know, I have my theories. Uh, um, I, I wonder what uh, the, my one what if uh, in the round two, you know, is that year, is if – I used to confuse you. What year was it that Malone missed the free throws? Is that 97 or 98? Which one? The year they missed the free throws. I think if they win that game, they got a real shot at winning that series. I, uh, you know, and, of course, only Carl, you know, Michael steals the ball from Malone from behind. You know, that's not going to happen. 
I, I think Carmelo's are highly overrated historically, by the way. Highly, highly, highly. But oh my boy, am I? I'm, I'm sorry, you're pushing buttons. I'm sorry, I shouldn't go there. No, you but, can go there. By all means, by all means. I just think he is. I, I, he, he's not. Michael's not making that play on on the next ten forwards I can name, but he makes it on Malone. Anyway, Malone makes a free throw, so everybody got a shot. I don't know. Why uh, has Why has he been overrated over the years? Because he wasn't a big game player. And he, he, he was a, he had he had one he was a one trick pony. It was an amazing trick. It got him like a hundred thousand points, right? That turnaround jumper. But he had no creativity, no no spontaneity, no plan B. All the great ones got a plan B. All of them, the truly great ones, I think, have a plan B. He didn't have a plan B, you know. And Stockton, frankly, I if he's playing with Joe Average point guard, you know, you you know, you can you can subtract a, a good percentage of those points. What else did you write down in your notes? Because you mentioned that you were watching and, and noting the whole time. If you give me a second to go. Uh, yeah. Have at it. Okay. The first note is, oh, uh, I would not let anyone who has never put on a uniform dictate what we will do on a basketball court. This is Michael saying why he was never going to give up on that season. Uh Jerry Krause, oh, uh, defending himself about leaving the word alone out. Uh, then we've got, uh, and I couldn't believe it when I saw Phil say that Krause said, and, and no, uh, I, I don't care if you win 82 games, will, this will be your last year as coach. I wrote that down word for word. Michael wearing a beret in Paris, you know, just jumping right into the whole thing. I like that one. Oh, I freaked out. Hitting his head on the backboard. We kid about this with people historically. We always kid about that. He did it. He blocked the shot. You saw it yeah. in college. You hit his head in the backboard. Right? <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, oh, the um, making the shot against Georgetown and the declaration that that's when Mike became Michael. But that was interesting. Uh, let's see. Oh, ooh, interesting. Rod Thorne, candidly, and I love Rod Thorne. God love him. Uh, admitting that if the draft had taken place before the uh, uh, after you know after the Olympics that that uh, he never would have gotten Michael Jordan, that after what he, the show he put on the Olympics, that the Rockets would have had to change their mind. Interesting. Uh, that one. I uh, made a note. Uh, oh, when, when Michael talked about that famous encounter when he knocked on the door of his teammates and all, all kinds of interesting things were going on in, in that room uh, when he was a rookie. Yeah. Uh, you know. In Peoria, no less. In Peoria, <laughs> the home of Jerry Krauss. <laughs> How's that for, you know, you can't make this shit up, as they say, right? You can't. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to end with my favorite thing. Uh, oh, Scotty Pippen. I like him saying, I'm one of the best players ever to play the game. That's a very interesting analysis. Uh, it depends on how far down you want to go, you know, on the line. Is he a top 10? No. Is he a top 20? No. Is he a top 50? For sure. Is he a top 30? Probably. Okay. But it's depends on, how, you know, what, what the higher, well, how you differentiate, you know, where do we draw the lines from levels of, of true greatness, you know. Where is he you on know, your list? He's in that top 30. He's put it this way. Uh, you know, I'm biased. Talk about guys. Uh, what he did essentially the same skill level, the same uh, bag of tricks, if you will, uh, as John Havlicek. And I would take John Havlicek any day over Scotty Pippen. And I don't have to apologize for that. Uh, I, we, already mentioned, we already mentioned the um, uh, Reinsdorf. The adamant, the adamant, you know, arrogance of saying after the guy signs a contract, I don't want to hear from him again. And then finally, my favorite tidbit, and whoever did this 
is should be getting you know a bonus from the, the production company. But did you see the tag on Barack Obama? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Former Chicago, Chicago resident. <laughs> hey, that's my kind of guy. Whoever wrote that cap. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually surprised in my notes and in, 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 I had never seen the clip of Bobby Knight at the Olympics saying Michael Jordan was the best player I've ever seen. I mean, at that point in his career, too, which That's is very good, because I knew that Knight had come out of it battling about a night. Excuse me, about Jordan in general, that he that he was. But but that specifically, no, that specific declaration, I have not I don't. I'd never seen before, but I was aware that he certainly had come out as a huge fan of Michael Jordan, that he was the best player we had and all that. But, but boy, that one, no, that's very specific in a way that I have never seen before. You're right. Yeah. I agree. And, and one more, uh, it's a little bit of a tease and I won't give it to you to ruin it for you, but let's just say at the beginning, it's at the very beginning of the next episode, David Aldridge drops a, uh, comes out, comes out just with a, with a wonderful bomb. Uh, not a bomb, so to speak, but, but just a, I, 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 quite the declaration, which I was like, okay, all right. It's, I'll just leave it at that. This is not anything to do with anything, but it's just everybody. I don't have, I know he knew who I was. I had, but I had, I, I'm not going to claim to have any kind of, you know, relationship with Michael, you know, like other guys did, you know, like Mike Lupica did. And Mike, a lot of people did, but I did. I didn't go, but he knew who I was. And two, two little vignettes you'll love about Michael. Uh, the first one is when Michael was playing baseball, and they came, uh, the White Sox brought their, and he was still on the roster, major league roster then, just before they, you know, and they came to uh, Fort Myers for an exhibition. I was covering the Red Sox in, 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 uh, in that summer, I mean, in, in the spring. And uh, I sat through a 10-inning game or 11-inning ex- exhibition game, you know, to see, watch him play and then sitting down and, and be part of the interview process afterward. Well, I had a chance to bust his balls because it was the day after BC beat North Carolina, one of a one-week North Carolina in an NCAA tournament in 1984. <laughs> oh, he goes, oh, no, stop it. I go, and I just go, I'm a BC guy, okay? That's A. So I had my, my little moment of, of busting Michael Jordan's ball, so I can take that one to my grave. But the other one was, <laughs> and it completely, this is like freak spooky, Ryder Cup, 1999, the famous USA comeback at the country club. I was lagging behind... Uh, with Colin Montgomery and and uh, Payne Stewart uh, against uh, uh, and, and up in front was the Justin Leonard Olathebel match on on the seventh they were on the seventeenth green and I was hovering back and forth and as I walk up um, I see sitting in an NBC golf cart about a hundred yards one hundred and fifty yards below the hole guess who Michael so I sat there with Michael and we watched the putt from afar and then the craziness on the green. So, I mean, I'm just, just saying, and then I did see him one at a time at the Ryder cup at K club in Dublin. Just saw him on the side, on the fairway. We said hi a couple of times, but uh, yeah. Which by the way, it, it, maybe you can dispel uh, this theory slash myth. There was a lot of people who were like, look, Michael Jordan, if he want, if he dropped basketball right now, could join the PGA immediately, which that's ridiculous. Right. I mean, that's, no, it's not. He's not. He was never that good. The, yeah. I, I think the golfer of the time, I think, that could really play among those guys, the way like Curry apparently can play today, Liam Beer, all seven foot of them. I hear wow. he's a good golfer. Larry, now Larry, 
and I, I would put Larry, I saw Larry play once for 18 holes, no, 27 holes, actually. And if Larry worked on it, Larry, Larry could probably be a, a good single digit handicapper. I, I put Larry in the low eighties, you know, kind of guy, you know, he, uh, with his talent. Um, but Michael, he wasn't that good. He lost a lot of money in the golf, but that's all. I don't, know, I don't know how much they're going to get into that, that whole game. I can't wait. That's, wait a minute. Let's back up. There's your answer to the question you asked me 10 minutes ago. <laughs> there you go. How much are they going to address the gambling thing? Uh, uh, that's my big question. <laughs> well, <laughs> they do it. And uh, I think all of us want more even okay. after they do yeah, it. We're gonna, I don't expect that one to ever. I think he's going to take some. Well, I don't know if he's going to take secrets to his grave because there are too many people out there that, that have stories to tell. I, I think. I, I, look, I, I don't think you ascend to the heights that he has without keeping some stuff <laughs> close to the chest. I, I, I think it's impossible. I think there are plenty of secrets he'll keep to his grave. Um, yeah. I don't think he reveals <laughs> everything here. Yeah. Oh, no, no way. But, but still, it's revealing that he did it, and I'm glad he did it. And, and boy, it's it's a nice thing to have at this point in time for we sports fans. Oh my God, it's it's oh. a, it's a saving grace. Um, mm-hmm. Before we go, Bob, there, there is this recurring uh, theme throughout the rest of the documentary, and it's even in the first two episodes. And we've talked about it about Jordan's will and drive to be great. Um, I'm curious about your reflections on his drive, but I also want to kind of bring it to you as someone who's been writing since the age of, I believe, 20 or something like it. Um, You wrote that book, as you mentioned, Scribe, My Life in Books. And in the process of writing it, you talked about how you looked at the scheduling patterns of writing of folks like Philip Roth and, and John Updike, these kind of perennially great writers uh, in the canon of American literature. Do you feel like in your career, now that you have retired in some way, do you feel like you've achieved the greatness that you were striving for back then? It's hard to answer that, honestly, without coming sounding immodest, okay? Uh, there are two phases to my career, if you will, or two or three. Pure beat man, uh, which was sprinkled in the beginning with still covering high schools while I was covering the pros. That's the way the world was. Uh, a little period of general writing of features and 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 occasional columns, and then become a columnist full-time in 1989 until I retired officially after the London Olympics in 2012. But I had written 100 columns, hundreds before that, before I became a full-time columnist. Uh, I think I was a good columnist. I think I was a pretty good columnist. I, I stack up, you know, I'm proud of my column work, uh, no question. Uh, I, I'll, I'm, I'll stand up. You know, I'm proud of it. I think I achieved something very good. And I've been um, inducted into multiple halls of fame for my writing. Okay. Um, but the thing that I want to hang my hat on uh, is that basketball beat writing. Because I tried to take it and do something with it that I won't, I won't say hadn't been done, but do as well as it could be done. And I treated those games uh, seriously. I tried to write uh, uh, literature. I tried to write from the beginning, the middle, and an end. Uh, um, on, and writing stories on deadline is what the essence of a newspaper man was always supposed to be. It no longer is a big deal. It's not longer a big deal at all. But, uh, and, and a traditional game story has been, is being systematically uh, ostracized and, and eliminated by American newspapers. Um, my own paper, Globe, 
really don't they don't write conventional uh, game stories in, in any sport now at all. And so uh, they they write impressions. And anyway, I'm proud of what I did. I don't honestly, I don't think anybody wrote basketball game stories any better than I did. Frankly, I mean, I don't, you know, that sounds modest. Fine, you know, but show me. That's all I want to see. If anybody wrote better game stories, and and I'll give you. Um, just so happened today's the anniversary of the 63 point game to as, as we speak today on the 20th April, uh, 2020. And, um, you know, the, in the paper of February of April 21st, 1986, I, thank God I had all day to write cause the game was at one o'clock. So that wasn't a pure deadline. That was a, that was a cheating deadline, but my God, you know, I like the story I wrote. I, I'll stand the story up. I think it, it, it dignifies the event, put it that way. I don't think anybody's going to do any better than that. I like to, uh, so I'm, probably, I'm very proud of that. The thing is, though, it doesn't matter anymore in terms of history because nobody, it's, it's no longer in vogue. You know, columns are always going to be in vogue. And I'll stick up, my, put myself up there with columnists, uh, with the best columnists that have been. Yeah. So I'm proud. No, I look, I had, look, I have very few skills in life, right? Um, I have no mechanical aptitude whatsoever, zero. Um, <laughs> pretty good, not bad, you know, but that's about it. Uh, I don't deny, I'm not good at, I can't, I don't, I don't have, but words, thank God I had an aptitude. That's the word you'd use. And, and I was given a wonderful opportunity to develop that aptitude from various educational opportunities. Then the incredibly good fortune of starting at the Boston Globe in 1969, when it was on its way up to its apex, and it was a writer's paper. Now, what's the difference? It was a writer's paper, not an editor's paper. You know, mm. if they pretty much figured if we send you to a story, you write it the way you want, unless you do something stupid. Yeah. And of course, you know, you have to have a certain amount of editing at times, but it was a writer's paper. And I started the same day as Peter Gammons uh, on, on June 10th, 1968. And um, you saw how he turned out. And I think that's a pretty good one too for a newspaper to cough up uh, in, in uh, 1968. So uh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to make that association. Well, Bob Ryan, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure and, and truly uh, thank you so much for everything you have written over the years and for being the first person on this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So long, Bob Ryan. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. And there it is. Thank you so much for listening to The Last Dance After Show. If you'd like to learn more about Bob Ryan, you can read his book, Scribe My Life in Sports. It's available on Amazon and wherever you get your books. I'd also like to thank our editor, Kat Owen, for making this podcast possible. This podcast, The Last Dance After Show, is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. This is the A side of the show. We are going to do a B side every Thursday, the A side every Monday. David, who do we have again on Thursday? On Thursday, we have Carl Tart and Dan Van Kirk, both uh, very funny gentlemen. Uh, who are going to be talking about the last dance with us? A little bit different than Bob Ryan in terms of uh, in terms of uh, in terms of an occupation, but we are very excited to have them on the show. If you have not watched the last dance, it is available on ESPN uh, and ESPN.com. They also have an app. I don't know what the app is called. I assume the app is called ESPN. I think you're right. If you're trying to watch it on television, episodes three and four will air next Sunday. Before those air, they will be re-releasing episodes one and two if you'd like to watch them in order. Before we go, we're going to make an effort on this podcast uh, every week to highlight uh, an institution that is combating COVID-19 that's helping people out in this crisis. This week, we're highlighting Feeding America. 
If you have the means to do so, I know these are trying times, but uh, we'd really appreciate if you considered giving a donation to Feeding America. You can do that at feedingamerica.org. As always, I'm Sam Fragoso. And I'm David Villar. And tune in Thursday to hear Dan Van Kirk and Carl Tart as we discuss The Last Dance. See you then. Wash your hands, everyone.